Good morning. I'd like to invite our friends who are heading to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would, please flip over to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 54, for the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble. And my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the compassion and kindness that you have shown to us to reveal yourself to us. To help us to know you and to be known by you. Father, this morning as we take a look in your word about the notion of both justice and peace, about things being just, yet reconciliation being possible. Father, about how we should view our enemies, how we should act toward those who stand against us. Father, help us to receive insight into the glory of Christ and his gospel when things are difficult and things are hard. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning, Jesus, the giver of justice and of peace. So if if you want to kind of look back at the context specifically of Psalm 54, um, that subscript, uh, verse one from the Hebrew text about the Ziphites coming to Saul and saying, isn't David hiding himself among us? You can take a look at first Samuel 23 or first Samuel 26 and see some of the stories of that there. But most of us who have been in and around the church long enough, we've spent enough time in enough Bible studies, we kind of know the general story of what happened with David. So Saul was made king. Saul was a horrible king. David is then made king and, and, and made king um, in spite of a lot of things against him. So, you know, they come, uh, Samuel comes to Jesse He says, one of your kids is supposed to be king. Bring your sons to me so that I may anoint the one who's going to be king. So this this kind of tells you how people felt about David. A lot of times we're like, ooh, great David, warrior king. His dad didn't bring him. How would you feel if you were one of many sons and the great prophet came to your dad and said, hey, one of your kids is going to be the true king. And you bring all your sons to me so I can figure out which one it is and anoint him. He says, sure thing. And he brings everybody but you. He leaves you out in the field because there's no way that one's going to be king. 
A lot of times we forget that's kind of how David got his start. His own dad was like, well, there's no way it's David. I'm going to leave him out in the field. And so Samuel walks through all the sons. He's like, it's none of these guys. Do you have any other sons? Well, yeah, David, but go get him. Brings David and he anoints David to be king of Israel. To everyone's shock. It's because being a, a gentleman of average to slightly below average size and stature, I resonate with David. He wasn't a very big guy. Easy to look over him, especially if he's going to be a great warrior king. So David ends up being the king. But Saul's still alive and Saul thinks he's the king. And Saul didn't like the fact that now David was supposed to be the king. So we have this chase that happens. Saul's chasing down David and David has a lot of opportunities to kill Saul and he won't do it. So I'm not going to raise my hand up against the king. I'm not going to do it. Even though Saul tried to kill David numerous occasions. And we have a lot of stories like this one. With the Ziphites and a variety of other people saying, hey, we know David's here somewhere. There were a lot of people helping Saul try to find David. So that Saul could kill him. So when David writes this psalm, you need to wrap your mind around the fact that, yes, there's a spiritual thing that's going on. And we'll get to that in a second. But when David starts out, save me, O God. In David's case, this is literal fear for his life. Literally, people were trying to kill him. He's having to hide in caves. He's having to go on the run. He's having to disguise himself. He at one point had to go live with the Philistines. Listen, if you know anything about David's backstory... How bad does it have to be that you go live with the Philistines for a little while because of how much heat there is on you from Saul? It's like, I'll be safer with the Philistines who all hate me. Because I killed their champion and I did a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, they sing songs about me. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. That song was about the Philistines. He said, it'd be better for me to go live with those guys for a little while than to be anywhere close to where Saul is. So when David makes this declaration, when David says, save me, O God, by your name, he's not using overly dramatic language. Everywhere he goes, there are people literally trying to kill him. Foreigners, members of the house of Israel, members of the king's court, people that he considered friends. Everywhere he turns, there's only a handful of people that really have his back. Everybody else is trying to kill him. Now, I don't know what your life has been like. There might be some shocking stories in the room. But I'm going to venture the guess it's a really low probability that everybody, anybody in this room has spent as much time as David did running for their lives. Doing whatever it took to just not die. All while actually being the king. 
That's the part that's really crazy about David's life story. He spent a substantial amount of his time running for his life while technically being the most powerful person in the country. And so what does he do when this situation happens with the Ziphites? He writes a psalm and it starts out, save me, O God. Yeah, I think that's the song that you sing when you're running for your life like that. Because anywhere you go, you might die. But there is a spiritual aspect to this. Notice what David says as he continues. He says, save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Strangers have risen against me. Violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. So consider this request that David's making. And we'll see the both physical and spiritual aspects of it. So he calls for God to save him. Save me. Save him how? By changing my circumstances. By helping me get an army. By raising me up to be a better warrior. No, no, that's not what David asked for. If you know the story from Samuel, David has had ample opportunity to kill Saul. If Saul's dead, almost nobody's chasing after David anymore. The only reason anybody's trying to kill David is because Saul keeps saying we need to go kill David. Problem solved if he just kills his enemy. If he just takes justice and vengeance into his own hands. But that's not what he asked God for. He doesn't ask God for the courage to do that. He doesn't ask God for the skill to do that. He doesn't ask God for the opportunity to do that. Instead, he says, save me, save me how? By your name. In other words, God, you are the one who declared that I was the king of the covenant. By your honor, by your name, by your word, by your promise, you said this is what I was going to be. And God, I need you to be a covenant making, covenant keeping God that I know that you are. I could take a lot of this into my own hands and I could reconstruct my circumstances to my advantage. But God, I want you to display your glory in this situation, not mine. I want you to save me by your name. And friends, on a smaller scale, a lot of us struggle with that. We, we might not have somebody in the cave next door trying to kill us, like literally trying to kill us. But we all have had experiences in life where we've been accosted or we've been challenged or we've been insulted or we've been belittled or any manner of things. Someone's lied about us and it kept you from getting that promotion or whatever. You fill in the blank. And we've been deeply wronged by someone. And in the moment, we have a choice to make. Am I going to take matters into my own hands? Instead of, as the old saying goes, instead of getting mad, am I going to get even? Or, as the scripture says, am I going to leave room for the vengeance and justice of God? God, are you going to save me 
by the honor of your name. Because that's what in the Old Testament context, someone's name represented their honor and their glory. God, I want you to deliver me according to your glory and your honor, not mine. And I'll just be honest, great, great struggle for me. The rest of you may have arrived and be angelic and have a great halo of glowing glory about your heads when it comes to this sort of thing. But when I have been deeply wronged or when those closest to me have been deeply wronged, the immediate natural response that wells up in me is not, well, let's pray to God that he'll save us by his name and his glory. I would like to admit that's my go-to, but it's not. I, I just want to say, if I'm slipping into the cave where Saul is asleep, I'm likely not cutting off the edge of his garment to show it to him the next day. That's not what's first coming to my mind. And I know some of you are looking at me like, oh, I can't believe he's saying that. I'm just being honest. Some of y'all have to confess the sin of of self-vengeance and lying right now in this moment. Oh, there's no way I'd be like that. Yes, you would. Notice the next thing that he says after save me by your name. He says, vindicate me. That word means to judge. Judge me by your power. God, I want you to look in my life. I want you to examine my life. I want you to see the heart that I have, even for the one who calls himself my enemy. And I want you to see that I am extending even to my enemy grace and compassion and mercy and dare say love to my enemy. What we see David living out in the scenario through the psalm that he's singing about his current circumstance reflects deeply the teaching of the New Testament that we are to love our enemies. And we'll get to that in just a second. And then finally, David asked God to hear him. Hear my prayer. Give attention to what it is that I'm calling out to you about God. And then he expresses very pointedly the concern that he has. Strangers, and the word for strangers there can mean two different things. It can mean people who are not of the house of Israel, which in this case would fall well on the Ziphites, or it could be unbelievers. It's also the Hebrew word for those who do not believe, which means he could also be talking about Saul. Because Saul has been demonstrating ever since he was no longer declared fit to be king that he doesn't trust God. That he doesn't believe God's word to be true. Because if he believed God's word to be true, he would step away from the throne and David would be king right now and no one would be trying to kill David. Saul doesn't trust God's word. He doesn't believe God's word. He's not relying on the truth of God. He's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Strangers and or unbelievers have come against me. And notice what he says the indictment is about these strangers, about these People, He says they are violent men. They've sought my life. What is it that these strangers and violent men have done? They have not set God before them. Friend, if you are an unbelieving person, if you are a violent person, 
It is because God has not been set before you. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Now, this is not me publicly declaring a place of pacifism, because I know a lot of times statements get made from pulpits and people grab them, and they run with them. And, you know, well, Philip's saying you can't ever be violent and uh, love God at the same time. Absolutely not true. David was profoundly violent. You do remember the David and Goliath story, right? That's profoundly violent. Like all of our favorite children's Sunday school stories are profoundly violent. Like we just don't teach them in Sunday school quite that way. I was I was talking to somebody about something just a few days ago. And and the, and the story of teaching kids in Sunday school came up and they said, yeah, you know, stories like, you know, uh, Noah and the Ark and and, uh, you know, and, and, and David and Goliath. And I was like, yeah. And they were talking about like making little clay models of stories so kids could understand. them. I was like, yeah. So what do you do with like knowing the ark? You like get all these animals that didn't make it on the ark and you like start crushing them and throw water on them and stuff, you know? And it's like, no, we, we don't do that. And I was like, why not? That's the point of the story. Like, no, that's not the point. It's like one of the main points of the story. A few people made it and everybody else died. Profoundly violent. Listen, I'm not saying that violence doesn't have a place. There's places for violence, even for the godly people. But if your life is marked by hatred of others, a longing for bloodshed, a longing for violence, a longing for destruction, a longing to run other people down, it's absence of grace, it's absence of mercy. There is no reality of a hope for reconciliation and justice and peace and the glory of God. There's no room for the vengeance of the Lord. Then by extension, you fall under this category that you have not set God before you. Because you need to know David was an incredibly violent man. And yet, he let Saul live. We need to let that resonate for a second. On not less than four or five occasions that we know of, probably more, he could have killed Saul. And he didn't. And the reason why he didn't is he said, I want to honor the Lord. So what do we what do we then do? What happens in this psalm? Notice what David declares about the Lord in this moment in verse four through seven. God is our ever present help. Notice the language that's used about the Lord here in this text. God is our helper and God is our sustainer. God is our helper and our sustainer. And those words have unique meanings. So helper is the one who gives aid to us, the one who supports us, the, uh, not supports, the one who comes alongside us, who, who, who supplies the things that we need. The sustainer is the one who gives undergirding support, foundational realities, those places where we can plant our feet and feel like we will not be shaken. He is our helper and our sustainer. And then when we get to verse 5, I... I don't do this very often, but I think it's really important for the context of this psalm. There's a really, really unique translation issue with verse 5. 
And I don't normally say this about the New American Standard for those curious or guests or whoever. I I preach from the New American Standard Bible. And I don't normally do this because I feel the reason I preach from it. I feel it's one of the best, most accurate English translations of the Old and the New Testament. However, there are times where they translate something and I feel like it's a total train wreck and causes you to miss the point. I think that's what happened here in verse 5. So verse 5 says, He will recompense the evil to my foes, destroy them in your faithfulness. That's that's what David is requesting. Here, David is requesting, it seems, for God to crush his enemies. And now listen, there are other Psalms where David does that. Like that's not an uncommon theme in some of David's Psalms. God wants you to crush my enemies. In fact, David goes so far in one other psalm, not only does he want his enemies to be crushed, he wants his enemies' babies to be crushed. Again, David was a violent man. This profound thing here. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that there's a better way to translate verse 5. And I think when you translate it this way, it flows better with the point of what David is doing here by trying to give room for God to... Engage his enemies in such a way that that peace can happen because that's what David was attempting to do with Saul. David's goal was not for Saul to die. David's goal was for Saul to repent and be reconciled to God. We, we often leave that out of the larger story of David's life. David did not want Saul to die. David wanted Saul To repent. And if Saul dies. And has. There's no room left for repentance. If he's not repented yet. I don't want him to die. I want God to be glorified. In his life. Notice he kept calling Saul. The Lord's anointed. Even though he knew he was now king. I will not raise a hand. Against the Lord's anointed. I won't do it. And in fact, when he found out that someone else killed Saul at the end of it all, that guy died for daring to raise his hand against the king. How dare you do that? Even though they were in the middle of full-fledged warfare at this point. So let's keep that in the front of our minds That David did not desire Saul's death. He desired Saul's repentance. And so keeping that at the forefront of our minds. Knowing that this is a psalm about enemies coming against him at the command of Saul. And Saul engaging with him in such a way that his life was in danger. I think the better way to translate verse 5. And it's actually radically different than this. Because Hebrew is a funny language like that. But verse 5 probably should be translated The evil will return to those who lie in wait for me. Put them to silence in your truth. So let me just read verses four, five and six together. But that way, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. The evil will return to those who lie in wait for me. Put them to silence in your truth. Willingly, I sacrifice to you and give thanks to you, to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble and my eye looks with satisfaction upon my 
enemies. In context, David's desire, if you go back to that Samuel passage, Samuel 23 and Samuel 26, in context, David's desire was for his enemies to be silent. That's most fitting. David wanted Saul and his companions to live. Yes, he wanted justice, but he also wanted reconciliation. He was longing for years. Saul was his father-in-law. Saul was the father of the greatest friend in the world that David had, Jonathan. Saul was still functionally the king of the nation of Israel, covenanted that way by God. And for the first king of the great covenant nation of Israel to die in unrepentant rebellion against the covenant of God would cause the glory of God to the rest of the world that was watching closely to be diminished on every level. David wanted everything else to happen except the death of his enemy. God silenced them in this unbelief. Let evil return back to them and let it crush them in such a way that they see their need for repentance. David even addresses that if that were to happen, he would bring a free will offering to God. I just don't think it's fitting in the context of the story. That David is wanting the absolute and complete and total destruction of his enemies. That's not really what he's going for here. Because if he were... He could have done that already. He had plenty of times that he could have just killed Saul and been done with it. Total destruction of his enemy. God, I want you to silence them. They keep making this noise in the community of the faithful. That's causing people to turn away from your glory and to see your covenant clearly. Have you ever been one who has experienced that Or, sadly, done that. Where your voice in the covenant community is actually causing people to not see the glory of God as clearly as they should. That's what Saul was doing. The entire nation of Israel was on edge and not seeing God's mercy and compassion and glory and love as clearly as they should have. And David didn't necessarily want Saul to die. He just wanted him to have to be quiet. And it's a beautiful thing that David's going for. David's longing for both deliverance from God and the delight of the reconciliation that would take place. And so what I want to do is I want to tie this into the gospel way. There's a passage from Jesus that we're incredibly familiar with that is super helpful for us. Flip over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 43, running through the end of chapter 5, verse 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So the love your neighbor is Leviticus 19, verse 18 in particular. 
you can sort of kind of find this hate language in Deuteronomy 23, but it's most readily still loving from Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. There's no real direct Old Testament quote. It was the traditions of men about hating your enemy. You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. All right, hear me this morning. There's no way around what Jesus is saying here. He means what he says. But I say to you. Love your enemies. We can spend months on that. And all of us as true believers in Christ, attempting to follow the gospel way, attempting to live kingdom lives, lives marked by the ethic of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, should spend our whole lives filtering through the reality that we, unlike all other people on earth, are called to love our enemies. One of the greatest modern philosophical objections to Christianity is this verse. What sort of nonsense of a religion would tell you to love your enemy? Your enemy's trying to destroy you. Your enemy's trying to crush you. Your enemy's trying to set up a worldview that is counter to all the good that you might be trying to produce. How would you dare attempt to love someone who hates you? What is wrong with you that you would follow such a knuckleheaded religion like that? That's really a legitimate philosophical criticism of Christianity. Why would you do that? It's the most unlivable thing I've ever heard. That's what they argue. And you know what? They're partially right. Incredibly unlivable. If you try to live it in your own strength, that's why it's a kingdom ethic. That's why it's part of the gospel way. That's why it's part of grace and transformation and coming into Christ. Because friends, the essence of the gospel is this. While we were yet sinners... You know the rest of the verse? Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, while we had enmity with God, while we were still a people who were far off, Christ Jesus made peace. Christ Jesus brought us near. Christ Jesus took our sins in his own body. Christ Jesus took the certificate of guilt and nailed it to the cross. Christ Jesus forgave us. Christ Jesus liberated us. Christ Jesus declared us not guilty. He loved his enemy. That's the gospel. There is no salvation. If God in the flesh, the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity did not love his enemy. Because friend, no matter how you want to slice it. When you were lost and in Adam. You were God's enemy. You were an opponent of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. No matter how you want to chop that up, that's just true. And Christ died for you anyway. 
and lovingly brought you to himself by his grace. But I say to you, love your enemies and not just love them. I'll go ahead and tell you, this is hard, 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 hard right here. And pray for those who persecute you. This may not be the right answer. But it's the answer that I've given for almost 20 plus some odd years of ministry that I've been in. I've had a lot of people over the years come to me and they talk about relationships and people they struggle with and people that they just don't love. I can't love. I hate them. You don't know what they've done to me. There's just this pain and this angst and this sorrow and this aggression and this whatever toward people. I get it. I felt that way before myself. I get it. How can I love someone like this? What do I do? Jesus said to love my enemies. How can I do that? Well, he gives you the answer in the second half of this verse. Pray for them. It's really hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. I mean, unless you're doing like an imprecatory prayer. God, I'm bringing this person to you again today that they might have great distress and traumatic events occur to them and that they'll catch poison oak while they're walking through a field and that they'll lose their job. Like, no, if you're going to pray for them like that, don't do that. It's really hard to hate somebody when you're praying for them. When you're calling for God's grace to be abundant in their lives. When you're calling for God to show his compassion to them. When you're calling for God, if they're lost, to save them. Or if they are saved, for you to have a heart of brotherhood or sisterhood toward them. Because you have a common father. Because Christ is your common savior and Lord. It's very hard to not love someone when you're praying for them. And that's why Jesus, I think, puts these two things together right here. Love your enemy And pray for the ones who are persecuting you. For what reason? Why should I love my enemy? And why should I pray for the one who is persecuting me? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Kind of a big deal. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those, hear me now, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers, do they not do the same? And of course, citation from Leviticus 19. Therefore, you are to be perfect. You are to be holy as your heavenly father is perfect, as your heavenly father is holy. Why? Because God in Christ has shown a profound love for his enemies. Because the scripture says it very plainly. That before Christ redeemed us, we were enemies of God. And Christ died for us and loved us 
in that wretched estate and calls upon us to love, hear me, to love our enemies in the same kind of way where we're willing to give up of ourselves, lay down our rights and our privileges, lay down our own honor and glory, which, by the way, is what happened at the incarnation. When Jesus took on flesh to come and die a death for sinners who did not deserve deliverance, who were enemies of him, who hated him and hated the work of the kingdom that he was doing. He laid down his divine privilege. He took on flesh. He had to grow up and learn things and know things. He had to suffer. He had to bleed. He had to die. He had no distinguishing mark that displayed the great glory that he truly had as the second person of the Trinity. He laid aside all of that. So that he could redeem his enemies. And you know what? In a smaller way, because David is a type and shadow of Jesus. That's what David's doing in the psalm that we're looking at today. David's the king. David should be on the throne. David should have an army at his back. David should command and people should follow. David should be pointing the entire nation to the glory of God and his greatness. David should be doing great and mighty things to display the splendor and wonder of the Most High God. And instead, he's hiding in a cave, not killing his enemy. Why? Because he's laying aside his glory and his rights in his privileges, in his prestige, in his place in this world, so that his enemy might experience the love of God. David wanted justice. But David also wanted reconciliation. In the gospel, what do we do? We wait on God's justice. While striving for peaceful reconciliation. That's what we do. As far as you are able, the scripture teaches us. Live at peace with all men. Now what makes this sermon remarkably uncomfortable. Is that if you've lived a little bit of life. Just a little. You, hadn't had, you don't have to have lived a lot of life. Little bit of life. Just about every person in this room, somewhere through the midst of the sermon, had a picture or two of somebody's face come to mind. And you've been having an argument with yourself. I hear what he's saying. But he can't be talking about that person I'm thinking about right now. Surely there's an asterisk. Or an exception or a footnote or something that would let it slide how I feel about. And you just fill in the person's name. In a room this size with this many people. There are some of you here that sit on the side of the sanctuary you sit on. Because the person you pictured is on the other side of the sanctuary. Can't say amen, say ouch. And you do not want to love your enemy to the point of reconciliation. The great problem with Christianity in the world today 
has been the great problem of Christianity since its inception. We want ours and we want it right now, especially if we feel that we've been wronged by somebody else. And we don't want to be patient. And we don't want to wait on God's justice and timing. And we don't want to pray for our enemies. And we don't want to make peace with those who stand against us. And we don't want to heap coals of kindness on their head by doing good to them who wrong us. And we don't want to model the depth of the gospel by loving those who hate us, which is exactly what Jesus did for us. We don't want to do that. We want justice and we want it right now. God, I was wronged. We want to take the sword of David in our hands and not cut off the edge of Solomon's robe. We want to slit his throat. That's what we want to do. And given the opportunity, that's what we would do. And we would feel oh so justified in doing it because you don't know how much they've wronged me. And friends, here's the thing. At the end of the day, no matter what wrong you've experienced at the hands of another human being. And there's a lot of great wrong in the world that people experience at the hands of other human beings. None of us, not even close, have experienced the measure of wrong that all of humanity did to our Savior, Lord, and Creator, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It's not even close. Our sin killed the Lord of glory. Innocent, perfect, Flawless master of the universe, king of kings, Lord of lords, alpha, omega, beginning in the end, first and the last, the one who holds all creation together by the power of his word. We killed him with our sin because we hated the ethic of his kingdom that he brought into the world. No one has ever experienced greater injustice than Jesus Christ hanging on the cross that he died on. And do you know what he did? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Do you not know that I could call legions of angels down? That's what he told Peter when Peter wanted to fight, kill his enemies. Don't you know? Don't you know that I'm the king of glory? Don't you know that I command the host of heaven? Don't you know that one day I will be the one to unleash God's full wrath upon his enemies and crush those underneath his feet who are not Repentant, those who need to be condemned. Do you not know that that is the prerogative that I have as the divine judge of the world? But right now, right here in this moment, I am going to love my enemies. And I want you to do the same thing. So this morning, a lot of times I've been told 
that I don't give just really structured, pointed application to sermons like this. I just kind of let people figure that part out on their own. I'll go ahead and just throw a challenge at everyone in the room this morning. If you claim the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you believe that you are called by his name, he has commanded you as David exemplified in the psalm, as Jesus demonstrated in his own death and resurrection to establish the gospel for us, that we are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who stand against us, who bring persecution, who bring that reviling against us. That's what we're supposed to do. Here's your challenge for today. If you want a practical point of application, I want you to identify that person in your life that you're harboring all that bitterness against. Most of us, it wasn't that hard for somebody's face or name to pop up in our head. That angst that you've got against that person who's wronged you oh so much. And that you've been justifying yourself for years, excusing away the hatred and bitterness that you have toward that person rather than loving them the way that God called you to. And here's the challenge. Two things that I want you to consider strongly doing. One, I want you to start praying for them. Because it's really hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. And two, if God gives you both the courage and the freedom to do so, if it's right and if it's good to do so. Once you've prayed for them enough to where you recognize that the angst that you have is not honoring Jesus. Reach out to them. Say, Philip, that's insane. That's Christianity. It's a religion of madness. That's what it is. We are fools per the world for not just what we believe, but how we live in our beliefs. Friends, it doesn't do us any good to say that we believe in the reconciling power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ while we haven't seen that God that we say we love And we hate our fellow man that we have seen. That's the New Testament for you. Ours is a religion of insanity and madness. And it's glorious. Because for a lot of us in this room. The emotional burden. And the trauma. Even some of the physical pain that we experienced is not from the thing that happened to us that made us have this bitterness toward another person. It's the weight of the bitterness that we still carry around with us that is crushing us. And there was a Sunday school lesson in one of the classes this morning talking about the text of Jesus's. Yoke and burden being light. A bunch of us in this room are dragging around a heavy burden of of anger and unforgiveness and bitterness and strife and hatred. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Do you know what part of that light burden is? Giving you the grace that you need to love your enemy.
to forgive those who have wronged you and to pray for those who persecute you and to demonstrate the gospel out loud in your life to those that the world would say, just hate them and forget about it. To heap coals of kindness on their head by doing good to those who hate you. That's Psalm 54. That's Matthew 5. That's the living out of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging things like Psalm 54. Thank you for the challenging story of the life of David, who though he had every right to kill Saul, Per your law, he would have been justified in doing so. Chose the greater, more God-honoring way. Painting a picture of the gospel of grace for us. Painting a picture of the glory of Christ for us. So much so that even if it cost him a great deal, he still loved his enemy. Father, may our lives be marked by that same sort of vibrancy and trust and confidence in your goodness. May our hearts be so transformed that we love our enemies. We pray for them and we long for their reconciliation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we have an opportunity to share together in the Lord's table. Today, for the first time in quite a while, we're going to do the classic model of what the, uh, the table has been done before, where we hand out the elements. However, I did want to share with you, if you are here this morning, you're still not super comfortable people passing things around like that, or if you are one who needs a gluten-free option at the back and at the front, I believe that there are some of the individual cups. You can still go grab one of those and get one of those. I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that if you need to, and then the guys who are going to help us with the table will come and be ready to help us here. morning we have the opportunity to share in the Lord's table together a picture of what we've just heard this morning of Christ loving his enemies, taking our sin in his own body, shedding his blood for the deliverance of our souls, forgiving us and loving us even when we stood against him and hated him and did not desire his way or his will in our lives. And it's, it's what binds all of us together. What I love so much about the picture of the table it's what binds all of us together. 
It doesn't matter your social background, your ethnic background, your racial background, your economic situation, your education. None of these things matter. What matters is that we have come to the realization together that we were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And that Christ graciously redeemed us from death and judgment. When, when we share in this table together, that's what we're acknowledging, that we all have a common confession that we were lost and ruined and dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this table. Father, thank you for what it means. Father, thank you for our ability to participate together in it. Father, thank you that it's called communion, common union that we have together, that common union found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he loved his enemies. He gave his life for them. He has redeemed us. He has reconciled us. We deserved swift judgment. Instead, we've received the enduring, patient love of God. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.
It's been given for you. Take and eat all of it. Father God, we thank you that by the wounding of Christ, by his stripes, we have been healed. Father, we thank you that he was nailed to a cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That he took our sin in his body. That he died and that he rose again. To give us hope, to give us peace, to give us life. To give us a family, a community of people who have all come to realize by your grace and for your glory, their great need of Christ Jesus. We thank you for it in his name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant given as a ransom for many. Take and drink all of it. Father God, we thank you that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood for our souls, that his blood covers us, it washes us, it cleanses us, and it binds us together. Father, we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready to close the service, before we stand together uh, to sing, there are a couple of quick announcements that I do need to point out to you. If you're a guest with us, thank you so much for visiting with us. In the pew in front of you is a contact card. We would love for you to either scan that and use it to give us some information or fill it in and drop it in the plate or the back of the front this morning. We'd love to have a record of your visit and how to pray for you and minister to you. Also, today is the day that we are casting our elder ballots. We will send out the results of those later. We won't wait around here today for those. But over here on the table to the side by the basket are the ballots. If you are a member in good standing over the age of 18, you have the opportunity to fill that in. There's a chance to mark yes or no for each one of our candidates. Place for you to sign your name and print your name so that we know that you are a member of Sylvania Church as you cast that ballot. We'll gather those up after everyone has left and had a chance to drop that in the basket on their way out. And then we'll send out an email and make an announcement next week about how that turned out. So uh, having said all that, if you would please let's stand and we will sing the Lord's Prayer together.